Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is Simon Sweetman and this is episode 75. I am having a chat with uh, Kiwi filmmaker, legendary Kiwi filmmaker, documentarian, um, Gaylene Preston. She has made so many great films, a lot of great documentaries and you know, narrative fictional films too, but particularly I think in the last few years she's become known as this documentary maker across, across TV and feature films. Um, and you know the main thing we were talking about obviously was her film that's doing the festival circuit at the moment My Year with Helen where she follows Helen Clark on her ultimately unsuccessful bid in the United Nations and you know we know that going into the film that's not a a spoiler alert in fact that's kind of what makes the film I think so compelling like it becomes its own sort of victory lap We, we talk about that in this podcast we talk about the access that she got, the intimidation that she felt, the what she could and couldn't include, um, the whole process of making this really incredible movie. I was lucky to see the film uh, ahead of talking to her, which you know needs to happen, obviously, otherwise I couldn't talk to her with any uh, insight at all um, to what she went through. And uh, we we then go and talk about some of her other films too and her experiences. She's um, had a colourful life and continues to inspire many people as well as continues to make her own really great and important art. I think one of the things that she's, you know, she has been really well lauded and rewarded and, and, and is, is known, but one of the things that she has done so well and deserves to be, um, you know, known for is her chronicling of important Kiwi uh personalities and celeb- well not just celebrities but important New Zealand writers artists politicians uh, yeah so she's uh, and, and filmmakers too other filmmakers you know she made this incredible uh, documentary which we talk about in this film um, about the making of the movie Utu uh, which was a TV you know it was a TV making of but now with the re-release of Utu on DVD it's there as a as a standalone feature and it's a, a compelling piece of filmmaking in, it, in and of itself uh, about one of New Zealand's great films obviously. So I was very lucky to have an hour or so with Gaylene Preston. We had to shuffle around a few schedules to get this to happen. I had to do one thing that I haven't done on the podcast yet which was cancel on her the first time. I had a sick child so I had to pull the pin the first time we were going to do it and um, so I'm really grateful to Gaylene and to her publicist for um, for for getting this to happen and um, I'll give a shout out to my mother-in-law Jill too, who organised some childcare because we did this in the school holidays. So I had to, I had a, a, a son and a nephew to uh, to hide away for an hour or so while um, while I had this chat, and I had a brand new puppy who uh, was a day old to us, and I thought, oh god, he's going to bark the whole way through. Well, he sat and um, at my feet and slept. So thank you very much, Bowie the dog, for uh, being being a good boy, and, and he's welcome back on the podcast anytime if he keeps that up. Thanks to Yeasty Boys, Tea Leaf Tea, and Lef- and uh, I was going to say Lafare. Lafare used to give us coffee. Um, tea Leaf, we, we want some coffee if someone wants to give us some coffee. Yeasty Boys, Tea Leaf Tea, and Le Petit Chocolat are our sponsors, and we uh, get great stuff from them, and thank you. This is me chatting with Gaylene Preston. We talked a little bit about the film before I hit record, so I wonder if we talk a little bit about the film first, then go back to anything and everything else and maybe maybe we'll even end up back giving the film a plug since it's about to to see its release um we were talking a little bit about um how 
the film was the film was going to be a victory lap either way, and the, you said it didn't matter what the outcome was. It was about the, the process of following her. Yeah, because that's you know you'd be a bit dumb to make a film that had that's a documentary that's following one of the favourites in a race and what say the favourite didn't win yeah. does that mean you don't have a film yeah. and it, it's interesting really isn't it because I think our I think here in New Zealand we're really used to this idea of winning you know yes. like you win it's our favourite sport and if you win you have a yeah. movie Yeah. you know Yeah. but if you don't win what are we going to do with the movie? Yeah. And I actually had um, one of the really serious investors in the film. You know, we, I went to have a coffee with him, and he said, "So, are you going to make the film or what?" And I went, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." Well, he wasn't worried about his money. Interestingly, he just yeah, didn't think, think I'd make had, a film it. about Helen Clark losing. But actually, it is about the process. Yeah, it always was about the process, and uh, Helen is the central character that gives us access to a world rarely seen. So you set off to film her, but not in the capacity of her running for, or you, you, what was your original aim, was to get a portrait of her? Uh, no, because there's been a very good portrait film mm. done of Helen. Mm. Uh, no, it wasn't to do a portrait. No, it was to look at the process... In, in geopolitical terms, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, everybody's down on the UN, you know. Yeah. Can't, and so s around the traps, you just keep hearing how the UN's not working. You say UN and people who know about the UN or worked on the UN sort of roll their eyes and it's kind of like the UN isn't working anymore. Um, and it's a frustrating place to work. And yet, Helen Clark had worked there for seven years. She'd renewed a four-year yeah, yeah. contract. And, you know, we all know down here in New Zealand that Helen wouldn't stick with something yeah. that was just a soft was... desk job where she wasn't achieving anything. She yeah, just yeah. wouldn't. Yeah. She's not that kind of person. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't operate like that. So I got curious as to what it was that was working. Um, I didn't know about the Secretary General thing. I had no idea of it. I, like, I'm, I'm, um, as a filmmaker, I'm quite intuitive. I like to sort of splash in without too many preconceptions. So I'm not the kind of person who's going to sit and do a huge amount of research yeah. uh, before I pick up the phone, you know. And I, I basically just go by feel, which... You know, sometimes I think that's really lazy. <laughs> but I've been in situations where it's really worth it because you can be watching freshly. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's kind of... I think any artist might want to preserve their innocence as part of it. You've got a kind of um, painterly approach to filmmaking. Yeah. You know, in terms of your... I mean, I met you, I think it was about 12 years ago, 10 years ago, I interviewed you when you were working on the Rita Angus oh, yeah. film, TV so, film yeah. and we had a big old talk about documentary as a as a process, as a genre yeah. right at a time when documentary was I guess 
finally accepted into the mainstream in terms of being a big ticket item, something that you would go, you know, film festivals starting to really push them in the program and, and documentaries getting general releases and, and a kind of renewed interest in made-for-TV documentary. And you were talking about, and I've always, always remembered this, you talked about, you know, how brilliantly subjective documentary filmmaking is, that it... No one person is going to approach the same subject the same way. Well, it can't be. It can't can't happen. You're putting a frame around That's right. reality, which is a bias and a set, like you know, well, or it has, a, it has to be, doesn't it? Where That's are you a... going to look? Are you going to look there, <laughs> yeah. or there, or yeah. here, or where? Yeah. So once you've decided where you're looking, that's your bias, and thinking you can make a, thinking you can make an unbiased work, in film is a bit, yeah. it's a bit of a. Well, it's not even best, I mean, it? I think, you know, when you look at how politics have gone, mm. since we might have talked back then, mm. you know, everything's so biased that mm. it, it basically, there's, there's a conversation that isn't being had, and the middle ground's falling out. But I have to say, you know, like, I saw feature documentaries in the cinema coming out of Australia actually. Well, you know, my first feature documentary that I saw was way back in the 60s at the Electric Cinema. Yeah, right. In London, and it was um it was it was the Bob Dylan one. Yeah, yeah, don't look back. Don't look back. And then after that the film festival always had terrific documentaries in it. So all through the 70s and 80s I was watching the best cinema documentaries from all over the world. Yeah, yeah. In, in the film festival. And, and you know, I saw Half-Life and a whole lot of really good Australian ones. So when we made War Stories, it just felt really natural to me to make a cinema documentary. Yeah. And I mean, that was 1995. Uh, the Film Commission didn't fund feature documentaries. I, I was very involved with Patu, which which was a cinema documentary that yeah, went out yeah. that went out in 85 so it's felt natural to me to make cinema yeah. documentaries yeah yeah and you've and you've made plenty of them in, in different ways i was thinking you've done you've done a few that are the uh fly on the wall you know talking head um you know reality and then you've done the What's quite common now too, the the sort of reconstructed reality where the people that like the Reader Angus one, the, the people are not around, so you employ actors to channel yes. channel a version of them. Yes. But you're, it's still a documentary. It's still it's, a documentary. Uh, you yeah. know, you're working from actual texts and from you know. But actually, Simon, I got a lot of pressure when I was making war stories to do that. Really. Yeah, and I kept going, no, 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 war stories our mothers never told us is. A documentary. It's a classic documentary. Yeah. Interestingly enough, because the stories are so potent, yeah. and because the archive fits the stories so closely, uh, we could never get any traction much in getting war stories our mothers never told us picked up by documentary film festivals around the yeah, world. Right. But it's screened in the world cinema section of Toronto... Yeah. Sundance, Venice, it did all the major A-list festivals 
as a drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this this line between drama yeah. and documentary continues to be really interesting. Yeah, it continues to be blurred, right? And I mean, I think My Year with Helen is definitely a documentary. It's a classic yeah. documentary. Yeah, yeah. But I think the way the audience receives it, it's quite dramatic. Well, I was... I, mean, I, I don't think I invented this at all, um, and I'm sure lots of other people have the same term for it or, or think the same things but have a different term but I always talk about the uh, the moment of documentary gold which I imagine most documentary filmmakers are are looking for within the scope of their film and so you so where do you think it is with that, with my you with Helen well there's there's two uh, key moments for me or, or key concepts around it first of all is that you um, end up following a a full kind of campaign process that you weren't originally already lined up for that 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 is handed to you as a little bit of documentary gold and I would say this this idea that we were talking about earlier that we know the outcome and that it, it, the film was going to be a victory lap either way and I was I was just going to say to you I think one of the things about your your Helen Clark film is you're probably I could imagine you looking forward to a time when it when it is when it becomes dated like if she if she had won and you had cop captured that the film would have been immediately dated it would have had a date around it it's timeless at the moment for quite sad reasons you know this yeah. and so when glass ceiling is fully smashed through and conquered and someone who is a woman gets the position that helen got went for that's only then is the film going to start to seem like it's got a date around it in any oh, real way. Yeah. So that's documentary gold too. You know, you don't even know you're mining for it. You know, with things like that, right? It's handed well, to you. Well, no, you don't. Well, not all, and yeah. Especially like, however, have you seen the five obstructions? No. You've got a treat in store for okay. me. Okay. <laughs> Lars von Trier. Yeah. Uh, he made a film. It's it's a while ago now. It won a camera door or a palm door. Yeah. Um, he had some money from a, an American distributor, but he couldn't travel. So he chose to make this film from his own sitting room. And he got um, his favourite short film maker, which was a film that had won the Palm, a short film mm. that had won the Palm Door at Cannes in 1968 and it was called The Perfect Human Being so there was this film he found this elderly filmmaker who was kind of mouldering away, sweating over his tiny typewriter in Port-au-Prince in Haiti before the earthquakes and he got him to accept the challenge to remake The Perfect Human Being with obstructions, five obstructions. So Lars von Trier, and this was accepted. Yeah. So Lars von Trier sits by his pot belly stove and they have a few schnapps and the first obstruction is remake your film uh, using 12 frame shots only, every shot has to be 12 frames, no more, no less. Right. And because you know everyone, I want you to work 
with actors you don't know that you've never met. Yeah. So I want you to do it in Cuba. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And the filmmaker gets, I forget his name, but he's quite a very well-known yeah. European filmmaker. He gets in his car and he has a fit and this is all filmed. So they then film the process yeah. of this filmmaker making his short film five different times with obstructions. Right. And the obstructions are, and you see the film. Yeah, yeah. You see him going through the process of dealing with the obstructions and then making the film and then going to Lars von Trier and Lars von Trier go, oh, I'm very disappointed, I made it too easy for you. Of course you are a wonderful filmmaker, look what you've done. I'm going to have to make a bigger abstraction. And, yeah. and they... It's a great film. Oh, yeah. All right, it's that's a great on the, film. That's on the list, And yeah. I'll tell you what, it really helped me make this film. Right. Because Helen wasn't obstructive. Yeah. But obviously... There are other forces. Once, you know, it's like you're here, I'm here, yeah. and you're making a film about me, and then I go in there and you can't film that. You can't film that because the the door's shut and that's yeah. that. You yeah. can't go in there because nobody in there has given you permission to film yeah. and they're never likely to. And that's not to do with Helen. Yeah, yeah, it's above and beyond and around that. Yeah. So you're obstructed. And yeah. you're obstructed by the UN system where, uh, you know, you walk in there with a camera and... Yeah. The, UN, the UN's kind of... The UN building in New York is such a beautiful building. You see it in the film. It's a mm. stunning mm. public space. It's really humanist public space, big building that that is really beautiful. It's lovely to be in. But you can't go anywhere in it if you've got a camera. And right. it's full of security since 9-11. So even, even getting in there, you have to fill in the forms. And then you're with Malu which is the Media Accreditation Liaison Unit. Yeah. Which are sort of the program prevention officers, and you can't go anywhere in the building without one of them with you, even if you have got in. And I would just go in there. Where, where There's tribes, you know, there's mm. the diplomats and politicians. They have a certain kind of past. There's the, the civil society lobbyists, they have a sort of pass, and there's the press who have another pass and are under the Malu wing. Yeah. And very much, uh, you know, they call it the press stakeout, and you're yeah. just behind this barrier all the time. Yeah. And so I decided that it was really important to, uh, to label us as not press and not media, because we're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a documentary, and uh, they they don't have documentaries. They don't have fly on the wall documentaries yeah. <laughs> shooting at the, <laughs> at the UN. I was staggered by the, and I won't be the only one. The yeah, the 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 depth of footage. These these shots that you do get. Obviously, there's loads more that you would have liked to have gotten didn't, but the amount you get. Yes, if you just it's constant. If you keep well, you can't not think about when you're watching the film that's part of the film you can't not think about 
the process of what the filmmaker went through to make that film. It's there. You, tra- you travel across nearly half, I think, half a dozen countries, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, you and we, get... And we, we, you know, we own up to the fact that <laughs> yeah. we're there. Yeah, that's right. You're not, we're not just God. You're not hiding. Yeah, that's right. You're part of the film. And, and half the time it's just me and my little camera, which is pretty scary. Yeah. And I've and Helen won't wear a radio mic, and I've got my Sennheiser shotgun on my camera. Right. So that dictates the... That dictates where I have to be. Ah, right. So that's why you're. Story. That's why you're in the frame as much as you are at certain times. Well, yeah. 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 So we have to own up. Yeah. Yeah. That we are there because obviously, if we're there, there's things that aren't going to be said. So once the audience know we're there, they're going to be looking for subtext. Yeah. So often it's not it's not what's said, it's what isn't said that's so interesting. Which is particularly powerful without spoiling it because it's sort of already given away at the end of the film. It's, it's, partic- it's, it's particularly powerful what Helen doesn't say. It's far more interesting <laughs> than it should be. Yeah. Um, how, I mean, you, you referenced the fact that there's a, a, a pretty decent portrait of Helen already around. How important was it for you to, I guess, humanise her in this film? Or allow herself to humanise herself, you know, allow her, you know. Yeah, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I just say you do a good job of it, you know, like, and quite, and, quite, as, as does she. And you think about, gosh, how, I wouldn't let anybody be filming me applying for a job in slow motion over <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. I actually wouldn't. And not just a job, but quite a, a quite a big one. <laughs> and it's not like there's really a campaign. There's kind mm. of a campaign. Mm. Uh, the transparency is a sort of a fake transparency, but everybody came to really... Everybody, even though they knew it was a fake transparency, really, <laughs> yeah. kind of came to believe in it. But and it juxtaposes with the footage of her her with her father and the discussions around family. Yeah. That's a completely another level of sort of humanising her. Yeah. And I just thought, when I, I, I'm using that term because I was thinking about, you know, did our media at the time she was in office um, in politics here, as even before being Prime Minister, did our media slowly but surely paint an ever so slightly dehumanising portrait of her, which I sort of think they did. I don't think it was that ever so slightly. No. <laughs> um, and they, I think there are several forces that cause that, mm. but I think it happens, it, it's likely to happen with a female politician yes. and a female leader. Absolutely. Far more. Now, Helen basically managed to escape what happened to Julia Gillard, who mm. was just I mean, she had Julia just dealt with crazy abuse. Abuse, yeah. yeah. It was abuse. No other word for yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Helen kind of went, "Oh, they think I talk too low. My voice is too low." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, there was a certain amount about Helen that goes, "Yeah, okay, they don't like what I wear." She 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 doesn't really because she doesn't care about that. Yeah. And she doesn't see it as an, at all important to the job she's doing. It's kind of water off a duck's back, all that. So they, that, 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 that didn't kind of count. Mm. But I always felt when she was Prime Minister that, you know, that kind of stern... Like Helen 
Helen is very matter of fact and mm. she is mm. blunt mm. and she's straight to the point yeah. but she's also I've always I've, I've, I didn't know Helen I, I, I knew her like a lot of people know Helen Clark yeah, right. which is that she's very lovely when you meet her yeah, yeah. You know, she's she's interested in what you've got to say. Yeah. She is very a very human kind of leader mm, mm. when it comes to meeting the public and mm. she she's got a real empathy with people. It's an empathy and then there's also that and you see it in the film, it's to me that's that's what I saw in the film was a combination of this empathy and the classic sort of old knuckle down it just has to be done. Yes. approach as well whether it's the getting the selfies with people or you know actual work just she understands it. you yeah. just have to do this and if you complain or make a scene it's far worse all round yeah just yeah. do it yeah she's a just do it girl. yeah totally and that's where I identify with her I was just gonna that was my next question I was gonna say what do you what at what point did you see aspects of yourself or you know what as as i would imagine filmmakers do when making particularly a single subject documentary like this where you're you know they, there is an autobiographical nature to making documentary right yeah i guess yeah. <laughs> so where did you yeah. yeah well there is in terms of what we were talking about subjectivity and bias and where you choose to put yourself and the camera and the subject yeah so, so if you talk about Rita <laughs> angus yeah know. um she was a just do it girl too. Yeah. Um. I. I feel like a complete idiot around Helen sometimes. It isn't <laughs> yeah. that she goes out of her way to make me feel like that. She's a pretty fearsome public intellect. <laughs> but she just remembers everything. Yeah. I've never heard Helen kind of <laughs> grasp for a word. She's right on top of it. She's just onto it. Yeah. She she gets it quick. Yeah. And she's pretty accurate. And there have been times... There's been times during the making of the film that haven't even been particularly to do with the making of the film yeah. where she's just said something to me and it's been actually really good advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, she disappears in your film at times. You let her slip away. You have to... She has to go. She probably wants to go and disappear and yet we feel her presence the entire time yeah, as well, well that's, that's, that's all credit to the edit and Paul Sartorius right. who is, I mean I've made my first the first film Ruby and Rata mm. I cut, you know, that was the first film I cut with Paul my second feature mm. and we've worked together on s several things like since then, yeah, uh, right. you know, war stories he yeah. cut and um Home by Christmas, uh, Bread and Roses. So we've worked together a lot. Um, and Paul has a human eye. Right. And Paul and I have worked together so much now that we kind of, we can have a really good, you know, Paul and I had a really good argument about <laughs> feminism going through this film. Yeah. At the cut. Because Paul kept saying he didn't think he was a feminist. Like, he'd, he'd arrive in the morning and say, I don't think I'm a feminist. You know, no, I'm not a feminist. I'm a humanist. Yeah. I go, Paul, you're a feminist. Don't be ridiculous, you know. <laughs> if you're a humanist, you are a feminist. You know, feminism is, is about equal rights. That's right. 
then we'd have a big argument. <laughs> and it's invigorating. Yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm only going to try and speak for myself here, but I imagine it's quite tricky for some men to want to wear that term because in a damned if you do, damned if you don't way. Like, I, I totally think of feminism as a, you know, about equality. Um, but, you know, I don't want to be yelled at for proclaiming myself a feminist and told <laughs> that I've, told that I've told done it all wrong and I don't know enough or that my reading of it is all wrong. But I also don't want to say I'm definitely not to well, get that, told off, you know, like... Yeah. And not, not, not because of the telling off, it's just about wondering where you fit into the conversation when, when I come from the side of the coin that's been dominating the conversation for so long anyway, so... You're, you're sailing alongside is what you're doing and it's hard and I know how you feel uh, because you know you get this with single issue politics because I feel the same way when I'm um, when I'm working with my Māori friends you know yeah I'm yes I'm a sympathizer I'm a fellow traveler but I can't be telling anyone what to do. And I guess, yeah. And the, my nature is to tell people what to do, and I can't be doing it. And it's no bad thing. It actually, it, yes. it is actually a stunning journey that all it is is rewarding. Mm. So, you know, you sort of have to get over yourself. You have to get over yourself. I, you know, I'll talk about women's issues, and I'll make it really... Uh, and I'll talk about women's issues when we're talking about uh, Māori filmmaking because there's a major women's issue in there. Yeah. But it's not up to me to be deciding what women, Māori women filmmakers should do about the fact that there's only been one dramatic feature made in the entire history of New Zealand film yeah. made by a Māori woman, and that was Māori made by Meritamita. Mm. I can mention it in speeches, I can keep reminding everybody of it, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm a fellow traveller in this yeah. regard, and I think, so I know how you feel, but I think that, that my feel about my own feminist journey, because I can only really talk about this, is that I don't think I would be a filmmaker, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be a filmmaker if I hadn't gone to the UK in 1969 with my first husband whose mother was the first woman to graduate from Edinburgh University with a Bachelor of Law so he was brought up by a feminist woman Mm. Uh, and then in 1970 I got involved with the Cambridge Red Stockings which was a women's liberation group so it was after reading The Female Eunuch and yeah. reading all those. So I am really, I am really sort of forged in that yeah. firm women's liberation tradition. So when, I, so when I came back to New Zealand in 1977 and there was a, a, a film industry basically being invented by larrikins, <laughs> I had... I had a philosophy that said you don't know what you're doing neither do I and please don't help me yeah danger danger so I had a I had a philosophy that put me alongside and when things happened 
that could have excluded me, I had I had my own philosophy to work it out. Why? Because I had retreated into the women's room for all that time in the women's liberation. Mm. Consciousness raising groups and my mission in filmmaking was consciousness raising. And consciousness raising is about talking to the mainstream. It's not it's not being part of the vanguard. You know, it's sympathetic to the vanguard, but yes. it's actually about entertaining while informing, mm, mm. which is terribly old-fashioned. But so my films, my films, particularly the features, are all they're all geared to the mainstream to shine a light and, and change attitudes around things that I believe in. Like you know, my first film all the way up there was with made with Walker Atwell. That was to shine a, get a, get into the mainstream to shine a light on disability. Mm. So and make it entertaining, make them laugh, make them cry, and hopefully get them, get it into the movies. So I've been at, I've been at it a long time. You yeah, see, yeah, seventy eight. So my my co-papa as a New Zealand filmmaker and a woman at that was never the same as everybody else's anyway. Yeah, how could it be? No, yeah. it couldn't be. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to answer a question. I've forgotten what it was, but no, that's quite right. But my, but my, my way to proceed. I think that what's I know what it was. I think what's happened is thanks to a whole new generation of young women like Lord, um, uh, Emma Watson, those high profile, yeah. very young celebrities yeah. have just grasped the metal and proclaimed a new thing. And I think that just as Māori have gone on Pākehā mission, yeah. um, the women's movement has now got itself firmly enough firmly enough mainstreamed to be able to go we actually we things have not got better yeah. we're not going to get anywhere so I think now it's time for men to swing in alongside and it just so happens <laughs> that My Year with Helen is the film that I think helps put that out yeah you know, yeah. of why well, also how why that's become really important because that film takes you right to the doors of the old boys club. Yeah. And that could be the UN. It, it that is yeah. the UN. Yeah, but it could, it be, could be the yeah. White House, yeah. it could be the Beehive. Uh, the beehive. The beehive. Yep. Uh, it could be any of the major corporate boardrooms. Yeah. And I look Simon, I've never really believed uh, I've never really felt that Talking about the glass ceiling is particularly important. I've seen it as certain people trying to get ahead and a certain amount of kind of land grabbing going on. I've always been for the underdog. I've always yeah. looked at the women, you know, the vast amount of women who are overlooked and undervalued and, you know, and, and just generally having a society that doesn't value mm. equally what is actually 51% of the population. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I haven't been 
that interested in female leadership, to tell you the truth, because I'm a get-on-with-it girl and I just do it. Yeah. And I run my own little shebang and I just do my thing. But actually, I've had my eyes opened by, the, by making this film, mm. really. Mm. Well, I was going to say, you know, me coming to your work, like, uh, you talk about War Stories, that's the first film of yours I saw. And then I sort of have gone backwards and forwards from there with them. But... You know, I think I've been thinking a lot about how many recurring themes there are in your work, both the fictional films and the documentary. Whether like the war is a you know an important landmark, you know, historical reference point for you. Um, well, making making women's experience. Yes. Of war. Well, exactly. I and mean, then, don't ask me yeah. about World War Two because no. I couldn't tell you about the battles. Yeah. But um, but but that's it. And then I, I was thinking, like, even with something like Mr. Wrong, you know, the subversion of it's in the title, the subversion of Mr. Right, and the whole idea of the male saviour. You know, like you could argue that that's some sort of glass ceiling type comment as well. Like in a way, when you start to put it together as a body of work, I feel like there's lots of um, little references to. The other thing with your work is just the, the, um, and I guess this speaks to your idea of being, you know, um, a voyager going along, you know, as, as picking these key New Zealand heroes, personalities, whatever you want to call them, um, important people, including some of the, you know, I don't know what, people that hide out a little bit, uh, you know, have a profile, <laughs> but kind of wish they didn't have the profile, perhaps. You've, um, you know, you've shone the light on them. So that's another, you know, but it, it, yeah, all I, of these I, things I, started to kind of, uh, you know, mingle around in my brain watching my year with Helen and go, it's really interesting how this one film gives a whole new context. I guess this happens every time you release a film for you and people talk to you about it, but I, I just, no, I was I struck with it. this one's really yeah, yeah. It's kind of my coming out film. Yeah, I was sort of struck with how this this shines a light back on your whole catalogue as a filmmaker in a way. Because think about it, like, for all the films that you've made and people that know you, I mean, this film's already sold out screenings at a film festival that hasn't happened yet. But now, people yeah. are going to love what you do and you, but obviously Helen Clark is what's selling that right and yeah. the journey that people are recognising they're about to get a, a window into yeah that's right and you know it's interesome because so all, I'm, all, I'm, make, all I'm saying with that are, is there are going to be this film about Helen yeah she's been in the top 25 most influential women in the world list in the Forbes magazine yeah for years so she was there when she was Prime Minister yep she went down to number 61 or something when she took the UNDP job because it wasn't considered a very influential job. She built it into She's a made very it. influential yeah, yeah, yeah. job. She completely rejigged the UNDP and made that an important position. She's back. She's number 22 at the moment. And yet, here in New Zealand, like if that was a man, like let's say that was John Key or let's yeah. say that was... That was, who could it be? I don't know, Mike Moore or any of yeah. those rogues. Basically. <laughs> well, I guess his story is, in a way, a little bit close to Helen's in terms of what he went off to. Yes, know. but yeah. if, 
If he was on a, he's not on a Forbes list. No. No. If if I just feel like if Helen was a guy, if she yeah. was a if she was a, a New Zealand bloke, yeah. we'd be hearing about this terrific New Zealander that was punching above her weight and blah blah blah. Yeah. You know, iconic New Zealander forging a path overseas. I feel that we take Helen for granted, really. Having seen her operating, I just think, I, I holy had, cow. I had that exact feeling within probably the first quarter of the film, maybe even earlier. You know, I just went, you know, and, I, and, and I'm, you know, it's not like I'm not a fan of hers, and it's not like I have, you know, haven't talked over the years about, you know, her being, you know, recognising on my own little level that she's important and, and all yeah, of this. Yeah, but you don't necessarily you don't... agree with everything she does or any of yeah. those things. But but she is extraordinary. And, and when you see Helen Clark operating out there in the global world and you yeah. see how many, particularly in the States, where you see how the American women operate um, and Helen... Helen walks through walls. Yeah. She really does. As though they're not there, she just walks through them. And and we have got more where that came from for the DVD extras. Yeah, right. Say. Yeah, but, I bet. But I guess what I'm saying is that there is a power. We always used to, in our women's groups back in the 70s, yeah. we used to talk about the power of the powerless. Right? How... If you're not the main thing, yeah. you can kind of get away with a thing that people because people aren't noticing. Like a sneak attack. And you I, can... you know, I'm 70 now, and I feel like I have managed to get away with making an oeuvre of films. Yeah. That I've been able to do in one spot. They are not. They haven't been hugely resourced. I've never had the big budget to make the big thing. Yeah. Um, my films have always been respectable uh, hits. They've never been yeah. the toppermost or the poppermost. They've never they're flopped. Gen- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gen- they haven't flopped. Yeah. Um, they when, find they find their audience, don't when they? When they've they? flopped, they've flopped boldly <laughs> yeah. and and picked up picked up niche later, like mm. Perfect Strangers mm. is now mm. having its moment. Mm. So, I just think. I've been really lucky in that regard, and I'm wondering if I see if I was a, a bloke. Yeah. Uh, there aren't that many filmmakers in the world mm, who mm. have been able to do that. Mm. Very few. You know, most territories have one or two. You well, know, you can name them. The Oscars, and they're not women. The Oscars is its own thing that some people are are tired of, you know, and, and feel that it doesn't speak to. Them a large part of filmmaking anyway, but it's still some sort of industry standard and that's so woefully underrepresented by female filmmakers and particularly in terms of filmmakers, you know. Yeah, but but look, the people in the world, independent filmmakers, Mm. who've been able to just get on and do their own work Mm, mm. and have the backing of enough of, of enough facility in their own territory to make their work how they want it to be and get it into cinemas and continue to do that over a long period of time, very few people. Sure. Like John Sayles, what's he been doing Yeah, lately? yeah, yeah. You know, like people like that, 
you know, we well, know. Like John, John Waters has given up making films. You yeah, know? I had a lovely cup of tea with John Waters um, down at the Museum Hotel a few years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, when yeah, yeah. When he was doing the one man show, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah. John Waters is from the Provincetown days. So John Walters is somebody I ne- nearly know, and we we yeah. have people in common that we yeah know. right. But um, yeah, and I mean he was just when we had our cup of tea, he was just so totally convinced he could never make another yeah. movie. Yeah, you know, and I was sad about that. Yeah, yeah, he was just totally convinced. Yeah, and I was sitting there thinking, well, my films aren't as well known as his. Yeah, globally. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like that, and I'm the same age as him. I don't. Yeah. He's slightly older than me, but I don't yeah, feel same. like that. Yeah. I feel like I might get away with another one. I feel like I might be able to get in, away with another feature film yeah. if I'm just a bit kind of cluey about <laughs> how I go about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I so, guess... so I have to say, I... Ha- I have been very lucky that way. I guess there's an integrity to someone like him deciding that he can't, you know, what it's saying is I won't compromise the type of film I want to make. But, so but there's an integrity there. There's but an there's integrity also a, there, but I don't compromise the kind of no, film no, no, I want I to know. make either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, totally. And I've never come up with an idea that anyone wanted. Whenever just think- I've come up with an idea for my films, <laughs> yeah. nobody, everybody's looked at me as though I'm mad. And, you know, you take like a film if, like... War stories their mothers never told us. Yeah. I mean, that got turned down a gazillion times. Yeah, yeah. And we just kept going back and going back, and I mean, it was years later. What a great, um, what a great um, skill it is, and also what a great feeling it must be to have people think that you're building a plane that can't fly, and then <laughs> off it goes again. You know, you get to sort of almost do the fingers out of the cockpit to well, them. Well, <laughs> Play, you yeah, see. They yeah. thought it was a little boat. Yeah. You know, and maybe there's a moment where the little boat could sail and yeah. the money's trickled in. Yeah. And and we've been able to make it quite a good little boat with 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 wings on. Your um I don't know, it's it is to do with the power of the powerless. Yeah. I, I like that, I understand that. Your your um sister creates uh a subtly hypnotic score for oh, the Helen movie. Isn't it good? It's it's it, it, it does that thing that I always want from film music, but it doesn't always happen where it could easily exist as its own thing. Yes. But it works with your images and your story that you've shaped to choir. they enhance each other. This choir going. Yeah, mm. it's just yeah <laughs> yeah. And yes, I- it's like you've got the the. Greek chorus on the outside of the, the film. Walls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have. Yeah. 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 And um, she she did the music for Home by Christmas. Mm-hmm. So we'd worked together before. And, of course, she is a very experienced film composer, mm. Janice. Yeah, of course. She's not well known well, as, she's... as that because she works in Aussie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said to her, look, I just... I just think the music has to inhabit the walls. Yeah. Because that that building is wired for sound. Yeah, yeah. They can hear you. Yeah. When you go through that building, everybody's whispering because they know. Yeah. Like I'd be up shooting something 
and I'd get a text from Gerard, the diplomat from across the road, yeah. going, oh, I see you're filming Thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. I see you're over there filming Thing. And I go, <laughs> <laughs> does he know that? But of course there's cameras. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted the... And we... we Ken Savile... You know, I was always happy when Ken, Ken Savile came with us. Mm. Because Ken, he... He's such a good sound recorder. Yeah, yeah. And he goes back to Mr. Wrong too. So so we would film the whispering. We would, but of course, once you're making the film, yes, you can't that's... stop the story for a bit of whispering. So <laughs> yeah, that yeah. became this part the of the score. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want, so, I mean, I she'd wonder come how. Around with it. She, she, she'd just sit in Mount Victoria yeah. at her place around yeah. the road. She's got a little. Um, yeah. little bolt hole around there yeah. with her gear yeah. and there'd be a, Paul and I'd be sitting at my place yeah. and there'd be a knock at the door and it'd be Jan going oh look I'm sorry I, d- I don't want to interrupt but I'm really sorry and look it's probably no use at all but I've got this thing and you can just look you can throw it out but just have a listen Yeah. and she'd be explaining what the music was as we were putting it into the film and we'd go yup yeah that could go there. Try yeah. it there, Paul. We'd put it in, and we'd have it in the film before we'd even had a cup of tea. Yeah. And then I'd say to Jim, I said to her, where is this coming from, this music? You've, I've never heard anything like it, and I've yeah. never heard you do anything like it. She goes, I don't know. Yeah, wow. And I guess that's to do with sisters. Yeah. Sisters being like when I was working with a with Home by Christmas, it was a bit like that too. And right. I would say, Look, I don't, that's a blue one, I want a yellow one. And she'd go, Oh, yeah. And she'd go away <laughs> and, and she'd transpose of, that, like she'd yeah. know what I meant, yeah. Because, like, I was amazed listening to the music, and then I was surprised when I saw her name in the credits because I, I know she's a fantastic musician and I've watched her play over the years, I've listened to her records and she's got, you know, all of this great old boogie-woogie stuff down pat but she's also, you know, she was in sort of near enough to punk bands and pop bands and stuff there so there's a great breadth of what she does but I just did not think that was her music so... Well she's in town, yeah. she arrived yesterday oh, so right. she's here but yeah. the other thing that happened you see was she fell over and broke both her wrists. Right. So that's two obstructions. And she's <laughs> you just count the obstructions. <laughs> she's got she's got so she can't use her hands. She's completely Which disabled. is quite limiting for she pianist. Has just, yeah. She has just cancelled wow. six months of gigs. Wow. All over the world. And she's now got metal plates in her hands and she's over here in Mount Victoria Not managing yeah. to compose wow. that score. Yeah. So yeah, it is a, a you see Lars Van Trier's film because yeah. you know I think when when you're working the way I have to work and you know we we started that film with a new innovative funding way which only gave us half the budget when we started and we had to agree to deliver the whole film for half the budget 
we have delivered the whole film for three quarters of the budget. But that is a good scheme from the Film Commission because it allows documentaries to actually get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's scary. And... Uh, but someone and like yourself so, that's probably lived on the thrill of that scare so in I, various I, ways a few times over the years, that's yeah. make, make that you know, that makes it easy enough. I sort of like, work at the top of the bottom. Yeah. But you back yourself because through experience as much as anything, right? Like you, you well you have to, really. And anyway, the money's on your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you've it, was, it wasn't Helen who was gonna be in trouble no. if I didn't pull it off. No. No, that's right. Yeah, that's where it's an interesting journey, the the what the film does and says for and about both you and her. You know, yeah. you're 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 not quite equal characters in it, no, but and, and, you, and you you don't want to be because it's not about that. But you are a you are a, an entity, if not a character in your There's film. There's a tension in it. There is. You know, I got really scared she was going to pull out. Yeah, and yeah. And that I would wake up one morning and. And do you mean it several news. times? Like you could have lots of footage and then her go, actually, you know what? Not today. We're done. Do you mean she that sort of? Well, yeah, she, yeah. Th- yeah, she could have. you lived said, with a bit of that. Yeah. She could have said, Gaylene, now it's in the I've thought again. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. I don't want to be filmed going down the plug hole. Um, I would. Pro- she, she could have just actually. Yep. She wouldn't have even had to have that conversation. No. She could have just made it herself really unavailable yeah. when I wanted to interview her. Because you know the spine of the film is these yes. these times when I arrive and and we have a bit of a yarn. Yeah. And that forms the emotional arc of the film. Yeah. So I don't use I don't use anything from an earlier interview yeah, later. Yeah. yeah. Which is probably another reason why Helen might have thought I was a bit dumb because I'd keep on asking her the same, <laughs> same questions. questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about Hawke's Bay and your, that's where you were born, that's where you grew up? Oh, well, yeah. I arrived in Hawke's Bay when I was 10. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Having come from Greymouth yeah. and swung through Christchurch to collect a brand new pair of glasses, <laughs> having been visually impaired. Yeah. S- still am, actually. Another good obstruction for a filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> um, I spent quite a bit of time in a hospital in Christchurch when I was little. Um, and uh, it was like the light went on. I had a strange thing that happened to me. So here I am, a little blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, scatterbrained, slightly vague, uh, precocious, reciting going in the competitions, Mm. kid, Uh, great zest for life, loved drawing. You know, I was a a relatively happy camper, really. I could play the piano and do a few things. Yeah. um, And I arrived in Hawke's Bay, and it was like the light went on. Like, you know, it was all kind of ming blue and pink and lippy-lappy and all of the... Lighting was underground, so there weren't any power poles <laughs> yeah. down in Napier, and, and and it was a wonderful place for kids because those people I subsequently discovered who were those people who were sweating in the summer, leading kids' community singing down at the sound shell. They had kept the community together during the earthquakes, and so. 
Napier was a great place for for participatory arts. Yeah. Um, and, and it still is actually. It, like it seems to have really got quite a thing happening again at the moment. Well, that's like good a because music it went through a period yeah. where it wasn't. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it was amazing. I mean, if you could play the spoons, you were required. Right. And so my sister and I were constantly racing home from school, changing into pretty frocks and going off and entertaining. Performing. We'd always done that in Greymouth a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there was the Helen Dyke studio. My mother was constantly complaining about having to make the costumes for Miss Dyke's recital that happened every <laughs> year. You know, it was kind of like California 1938. Yeah as far as kids doing things yeah, you know we were, yeah. we were we were schooled in Deanna Durban mm. um and so you know and I, I went to a co-ed school that had only been first first I think there were fifth formers when we went there when we were in the third form what was that Calenzo so Calenzo yeah, was right. Colenso was a brilliant progressive school. It, it was I got an amazing education at Colenso. Yeah. Um, and Colenso is still the only school that's got two arts foundation laureates. Who's only the school other? in New Zealand. Who's the other? Phil Datsun. Ah right, yeah. He was at school. I didn't realise he was a Hawks Bay. I was a bit sweet yeah. on him. Right. But he, he, you know, I'd go around to his place and he'd play me Jelly Roll Morton yeah, records, yeah. but he he was, I was Lucy and he was, he was the piano guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he never noticed. Anyway. Did he have an influence on your sister's piano playing and, and uh, understand, because as soon as you mentioned Jelly Roll Morton, I'm just thinking like, no. was she in on those records as well? Because or, or, she obviously found her way to that stuff at some well, point. Well, my brother was in a rock and roll band. He was in the Cool Four. Yeah. And they were a rock and roll band at the same time. So yeah. I was in the third form at Colenso. She would have been... She's four years younger, so she would have been... But she was cleverer, so she would have been... She was three years younger at school. Yeah. And my brother was in this rock and roll band, and he was playing um, Great Balls of Fire and stuff... Yeah, yeah. ...on the piano in this band. And uh, and they were, they were going up on, you know, like Cham the Man and Rocky Duchet. They yeah. used to have... They used to have a live radio. Yeah. On 3ZB, yeah, 3ZB, and we'd be up there, I'd be up there with Miss Dykes doing radio plays, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, the radio station was such a hub, Yeah. and um, they'd be doing the midnight live concert, the Cool Four, I mean, there was just a lot going on on a Saturday night, you know. So do you go from Napier to London? I go from oh. Napier down to Christchurch, back to the back South to, Island, yeah. back to Te Wai Pounamu, yeah. Wai, and, um, and I missed out the, all the great piano teachers because I was, by that time I'd studied classical piano for 11 years, So yeah. and I'd been in the little theatre productions down by the railway, you know, you'd, the train would go past and the whole place would rock during plays. You'd sort of stop, let the train go past the little theatre and carry on with the play. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, we were just busy. Just fantastically busy. And um, 
I then went down to Christchurch to Island School of Fine Arts yep. as a natural born storyteller and there was Don Peebles there, they were doing abstraction. Uh, Rudy Gopaz, abstract expressionism, highly schooled in the vagaries of middle European, I mean, I studied painting so we wandered around with a copy of a PhD by a guy called Vodinger who had written a book called Abstraction and Empathy, <laughs> which makes us pretty pointy-headed in yeah. the art history <laughs> area. And I wanted, I wanted to paint stories, but I wouldn't have been able to. I wouldn't have been able to articulate it that clearly. Well, you've found the right size canvas now to do that. I did. Yeah. But I didn't. Then. Yeah. But I, but I, so I just had a running argument. Um, Bill Sutton kind of understood me um, and so I never graduated because I had a big argument and basically <laughs> I didn't graduate Yeah. and in a way I was again lucky because I, I I didn't have to go to training college I didn't have to become an art teacher I became I just took the first job that came up by that time I was married to my first husband, Andy Dennis, who who had an LLB MA from Canterbury University and had a um, and was away doing a Master of Law at Harvard and then we got he came back from Harvard, we got married and off I went to Cambridge with him having worked for nine months at Calvary Psychiatric Day Hospital as a helper. You know, unqualified, no qualification. Yeah, yeah. But that was a very progressive place too. I kept landing in really progressive institutions from high school on. Um, and and uh, there were two psychiatrists in Christchurch um, David Livingston and Jack Balland, who were really, really looking at how group therapy could work in daycare and all that kind of thing. So I was working at Calvary Daycare mm. with the Australian nuns who'd looked after me when I was sick with my eye, eye operations. Yes. And sort of discovered art therapy art and drama therapy there, so this is by now 68, and tooled off to Cambridge with Andy in 69, and hit Cambridge during a particularly revolutionary moment. Yeah. And we just, we just screen printed posters for rock bands through Cambridge, the, the local drug dealer, a man by the name of Steve Brink, who changed his name by deed poll to Cliffhanger. <laughs> He um, he bought terrific bands to Cambridge, to the Corn Exchange, and and um, we had a little we had a little um, screen printing poster company, and we were screen printing T-shirts for protests. You know, why go to Greece when you can have it here? Um, uh, balls to the MCC anti 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 
South African tour, mm, mm. spring um, t-shirts mm. and rock posters. And so so I worked out at the library at Fullbourne Hospital as the librarian, knowing nothing about the jury decimal system, but the librarian, the assistant librarian, always did the hospital Christmas play. So I did the hospital Christmas play, which grew into a, a film and... The rest, as you might say, is history. <laughs> well, you, you've mentioned it, you know, I guess it comes up all the time, you have to talk, it's in, sort of in your biography, you mentioned it earlier. You come back to New Zealand in the late 70s and, and kind of there's a film industry bumbling around itself and forming, and you fall into that. Um, what yeah. brings you back to New Zealand, though? What is the necessity? What is the reason to leave after not quite a decade in the UK? Well, that's a very good question because I was very uh, happily. Right. I was living happily ever after. Yeah, it was going fine, more than fine. Oh, yeah. more than fine. Yeah. Absolutely happy, living in a urban commune in Stockwell. Yeah. We were living in at the right time. We were living in a house with a teak kitchen. Yeah. It was teak and stainless steel before anybody did that because it belonged to a North London psychiatrist. <coughs> whose wife refused to live in Stockwell. Right. So, you know, he should have checked first. Mm. So we were there. Mm. We were there paying minimal rent. Yeah. Actually, we were the only people I knew who did, weren't squatting. But anyway, so I was working down at Brixton College of Further Education, uh, making 8mm films with the uh, West Indian yeah. drama kids down there and the deaf kids. We did these little films and working with high density videotape don't know if you've ever seen mm, you know mm, but they're huge mm. um community artist really yeah um drawing cartoons for a social work magazine and i think to myself oh <laughs> i haven't been home for five years i'll just pop i just pop back to new zealand say hi <laughs> for six weeks and say hi and i'll Kiss the babies. Yeah, yeah. And I'll bugger off back to my lovely life. And I got here. And never. And then I, when I went back, I was homesick. And it was a real... Oh, right. So, yeah, yeah. I was put out. Yeah. You'd, I was homesick. You'd had a refresher taste of kiwi or whatever. It was, and just... it was the hills. It was the land. It was so unexpected. It wasn't the, pl- it wasn't the people. Yeah. It was the place. Yeah. It wasn't even, you know, I mean, it was such a drag. And it took me three years. But the, the people I lived with even did a thing like, you know, take me on a mystery tour. Right. <laughs> they blindfolded me after work, yeah. shoved a joint in my mouth, drove me <laughs> off to, to where I couldn't tell, yeah. took me across roads into a big... <laughs> quiet building and opened the doors the lights came down I was in a cinema and up came this is New Zealand (laughs) (laughs) and they took me for a malted after the film we were in New Zealand house obviously Mm -hmm. and they said right now we want you to shut up about New Zealand (laughs) those people look funny in there you know, they were all in beehives yeah, yeah, sitting there. Yeah. You know, we were definitely not like that. 
<laughs> and it, the, you know, they really thought that might get me over it, but it just made me worse. Because your, I mean, your films, even the ones that are about people, I mean, the documentaries and stuff, so Helen, Rita, you know, Kerry it's all these ones, your films are real New Zealand films and they feel very linked to, you know, I know some of them have travelled, but they feel very linked to the place. I know. You know. Girl can't help it. No, it's great. You're, it's yeah. great. I mean, it's great. Like you, I'd, I'd love to have been able to say, yeah, I'll actually go and make Problem and Child 2 in Hollywood. Sure, sure. <laughs> but th- here's the thing, this just shows that <clears throat> that's another version of what was obviously calling you back to New Zealand. There's something in there in your psyche that wants to you know to and and, you know you've more than once looked at the you know I guess the female perspective of war and World War Two. you know it's come up in more than one film and and, you know all these things that you choose to shine a light on you know it's a film about breast cancer but it's still about New Zealand right it's about New Zealand yeah New Zealand way to proceed yeah look I'll tell you what Somebody said to me, oh, they thought, they thought my year with Helen was a bit like Bread and Roses. Right. And I went, oh, that's interesting. I never yeah. thought about that. And then I thought, oh, maybe my films now go in twos, you know, like they bookend. Yeah. So there's War Stories Our Mothers Never Told Us. Yeah. And Home by Christmas. Yeah. Obviously, my mum and dad, they're, ver- they're very different versions of, yeah. their, of the war. Yeah. In some ways, in in some aspects, almost mutually exclusive versions of the war, of of what happened, within their relationship. Yeah. And there's Mr. Wrong and Perfect Strangers, and I and I Perfect Strangers was a purposeful conversation with Mr. Wrong. Yeah. Really, as yeah. I yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was conscious. Um, and now there's this one, and there's a, a sort of a collection of New Zealand artists like Horni Tufari and yeah. Kiri Hume yeah. and, and Rita, Rita Angus. Yeah. Um, yeah, they all sort of hang together. They yeah, sort of hang right. to- So it starts to make little collections. Yeah. Which hasn't been on my mind. No, well, it's like, um, who is it? Um, Werner Herzog kind of makes the the fictional version of something and then the documentary version or, or other way around, doesn't he? He tends to explore subjects twice. Yes, I think it's nice to be able to say, I mean, you make a documentary and you're just over it. Yeah. It's go, oh my God, that was hard. Who would be so stupid as to... <laughs> yeah. ...as to try and make a film in a, in a, about, about a process... You can't see it. Yeah. You can't film it. It's secret. Yeah. Right. Best will in the world. It's secret. And basically, all year, nobody is really going to embrace you. <laughs> yeah, nobody yeah. is really going to want <laughs> to see you. And nobody is really going to want your cameras there. Yeah. yeah no, anywhere you are. And your all audience. year, that can actually have an effect on your self-esteem. Yeah, and, and your audience never really knows, you know, always looks at the positive, like like I did watching the film, you go, man, look at all this access. And it was only afterwards that I thought, 
how much access was shut down? You know, like how many times could you not get the shot you wanted? Could you not get the payoff to the interview you'd done and you just needed this one little, you know, a frame to help sell that, that yeah, the icing on the cake. You have to be able to pay it off. Yeah. If you don't have the payoff, you, That's can't, right. you can't tell that strand of the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where a bit of experience is helpful because you know when when I was doing Making Utu yeah I just felt like I had leprosy and it, and it hurt you know these were my mm, mates mm, these were mm. these were people who were my peers and the only one who who wasn't who, who didn't worry about me and my cameras being around was Jeffrey and everybody else were just thoroughly awful about it yeah it was because they didn't know what they were doing and I'd I'd try and film them doing something and they'd think they were doing it wrong so it wasn't personal but over the year you just felt yeah like a piece of dirt under a shoe you know I remember watching uh, and I've talked to him for the podcast but when Costa filmed the kind of informal or whatever making of Lord of the Rings I remember actually watching hours of footage that he took for that and thinking that that's exactly how he must have felt like just this this guy that could get stepped on at any moment that yeah, he was only oh, ever going to be only ever going to be in the way oh look it's the docos yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh I, of course I was constantly trying to make the film that film about that was a film that was being made that was exploring cultural territory that was that was strewn with bodies literally yes. figuratively yes and i thought oh, i'll go on the locations and i'll talk to the pakeha farmers you know the, the owners of the land we're on whoever it is whether it's maori land or whether it's pakeha land and I'll be able to tell the history of the land as we are making mm. in, a, in an entertaining way. See, consciousness raising. So, yeah. you know, in an entertaining way, we'll talk about the history of the land. And um, I found that people would quite happily sit on camera and talk about their sexual exploits. But there was nobody, yeah. <laughs> Māori or Pākehā, who was going to tell you about the history of the land. Not in 1983 yeah. in New Zealand, no. Mm. That was the big taboo subject, mm. so that, that film was always fighting that. Yeah. Because I never got that. Yeah. Never got it. I mean, at least with my year with Helen, with the with the Shifa SG people, we got the the central theme. But the Utu film makes, the doco makes a lot more sense now for yes. people seeing it with the, you know, restore the new version of the film and just viewing it through with that knowledge that we have of now, 30 years ago that conversation was not open. There's enough yeah. of it yeah. in there. The blanks have been filled you can, in you can go around there. that. So your document was that was always worthy sort of makes more sense. See, see the thing about that documentary, making it too. Yeah. That was one I really thought I'd got away with, you know, and I still do. Like, that documentary is off its nut. It, it, it hasn't got a narrative. It's a yeah. non-narrative. 
It is a non-narrative documentary that isn't a making of. It's actually a really agile snapshot of a young industry yeah. inventing a new thing in a new country that's got a history that's bloody and violent and seeping around its edges constantly and it's an Alice through the looking glass film in that it goes into the film and out of the film mm. constantly and um, it's a it's a basically a non-narrative experimental film made for mainstream television that screened at 8.30 at night on <laughs> yeah, TV yeah, One yeah. <laughs> you know and, and and, and got quite a big mm, audience. Mm. So, you know, again, you see, what I was doing wasn't that obvious to everybody else. So how it gets how it gets assessed and viewed yeah. and thought about at the time is very different from what I thought I was doing. Well, I only know, I mean, I watched U2 uh, recently, but then I watched it for the first time, you know, quite a few years after it had been released, but I was still pretty young, so... I maybe didn't pick up on it as much the first time, but it's it's a it's a wonderful film, but it's a pretty mercurial, you know, almost even though it's tied to this history, it's quite an intangible, not quite non-narrative, but it's it's, it's, oh, it's close to it. Like it's so, rollicking. Yeah, it's a rollicking. Yeah. It's just it's, it's a, a very rollicking. Yeah, it's, it's a very special and spellbinding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like kind is. of. Um, take on a western it's a great but, movie yeah it's and a wonderful I was, wonderful I film it, I always thought it would be from the time I was looking at the script with Jeff but I only watched your making of when the DVD came out just the other year the end of last year so to me it made complete sense it was just you know I could line that up yeah. with the film that I'm watching now of Uto and go what a brilliant little insight into a strange film like yeah. a strange little documentary film to explain a strange little film. Yeah. Doesn't give away too much, doesn't spoil it, enhances it. Yeah. You know, and it's actually talks on, around it. It's, it's actually on its own little weird, Works on its own as well, weird, that's weird right. Journey. Yeah, yeah, works on its own. And then I can fill in the blanks from what I know over the last few years of how that conversation has, has changed it's and developed. It's very interesting, isn't it, when you see that even, even really experienced... Maori just weren't sure. Yeah. Just weren't sure. So, how do we film a tangi? Not sure we should be doing it at all. Yeah. But it's not a real tangi. It's a. It's a, it's a pretend yeah, tangi. Yeah. Should we be pretending? <laughs> wow. You know that. Yeah. That's, should we be telling? Should we be making this film at all? And you see, Jeff and Manita basically just forging through Incre- incredible courage really yeah mm. yeah um one thing i wanted to ask you which is, is slightly off topic and back to what we were talking about before but your your um interest in and ability at playing the piano growing up and, and following it through for you know several years of is that is that part of why that seems to be so commonly reflected in your film soundtracks? Working with your sister Jan, Jonathan Crayford's, you know, obviously done a few of the scores and, and is a, I mean, a great multi-instrumentalist, but a, a pianist first and foremost. We're not short of piano players in the, in the whānau. <laughs> no, you're not. I was going to say not. there's that. With your, your family has, and extended family has, 
performers, actors, musicians threaded right through it. But is there something you're aiming for with piano-based scores? Is that something that speaks to you because you have, you know, do you, or is that just a happy coincidence? No, never thought about it. Well, it's good to, it's good to give you something to think about. That's, it, that's what was lucky. The, the score for Perfect Strangers. That, that You've had some orchestral ones as well. It yeah. wasn't particularly piano-based. No, I'm just thinking that Jonathan, well, he did the... Well, the music for Ruby and Rada, yeah. how good is that? Yeah. I mean, that music is extraordinarily yeah. good. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, we are blessed with very good piano players. Yeah. And, and um, my granddaughter, Olive, she isn't two yet, but she basically plays the piano. Yeah, right. Like, she goes to the piano, she can, she's picking out stuff. Yeah. She's not necessarily repeating herself. But I was wrecked by too much piano practice. I, you know, I, I would wake up playing scales and arpeggios. You know, and I just think that kind of, that kind of schooling of young children should be Band. Yeah, yeah. You know, it isn't how to play the, how to learn to play the piano. Yeah. Um, Squeeze all, squeezes all the life out of it. Well, yeah, and it makes it a very much a read the notes, then yes. play them thing. Yeah, mechanical. Whereas actually, it should be a play them thing and use the notes as a guide. As a guide, <laughs> yeah. like we do with reading, with yeah. how we write anything. Yeah. Yeah. So my piano playing. Like, I'll sit and play a bit of Randy Newman in the middle of the night. Yeah. No fine time I, for I it. have been blessed by being able to... Um, like, like we had tea over at my place. I like to cook a roast. So we had tea over at my place this week. And Terry Crayford, who is my daughter's grandfather, yeah. um, he walks in, goes straight to the piano, sits down, and we have this fantastic piano playing while we... Well, I'm finally pulling the meat out of the oven and yeah. making the gravy, and you know, I, I'm just blessed to have yeah. these fantastic piano players about yeah. in my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've already been more generous with your time, and you're not feeling yeah, 100%. Can we finish by just um, asking what? Can I finish by asking you um, what you've got lined up next? There's a scene in a Werner Herzog film. Um, Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. That is very funny about that. Do you remember that scene? Like he goes through, he goes through this thing. He gets the boat over the mountain. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. die. Yeah. That it's terrifying. He he does it. He gets his bloody opera house over over to the town. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then it cuts and he's in the plantation owners wife and and the plantation owner and he's obviously had a bath and they're sitting around there eating proper food and it's actually very genteel and rather upper crust yeah and i think it's the plantation owner's wife who says to him and what are you going to do next <laughs> we always have to end everything with that it's awful like that's the thing i you know i wish i hadn't asked it but i want to <laughs> But I want to know. But I just want to put yeah, that Yeah, 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 totally. Because basically, nobody knows when they've just done a big thing. Yeah, yeah. They might pretend, they might, well, some people might, but I never know. Yeah. 
I never know. Well, it's I don't want to muck around, though. I'm not getting any younger. Running backwards with a camera's, <laughs> you know, quite testing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been... Um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. I remember enjoying it a few years ago when I spoke to you, but it's just um, it's nice to talk to you with this uh, with this film in, 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 in frame, as it were, because it's just an amazing film, and I know it's going to do so well across the film festival to have a, a, a big life ahead of it, um, but it, it really is a wonderful film. Here's to you, Simon, oh. because I'll tell you what, if you're right... <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm more likely to make my next one sooner rather than later, perhaps. Oh, well, fingers crossed then.